Hi there, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ, and I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and learn how to honor and glorify Him. In Genesis chapter 2, we learn that marriage is a creation of God. God, therefore, has the right to govern our marriages. Today, as we wind our way through the political battlefields about what marriage is and who's allowed to be married, we as Christians understand this, that God governs marriage. And we want to have marriages by God. One of the biggest political minefields of our day is the discussion of marriage. What is it? Who gets to be involved? We as Christians recognize one thing about marriage. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We recognize that marriage is a creation of God. Marriage is not an evolutionary byproduct. Marriage is not something that's happened over time as society became more and more civilized. Marriage was created by God when, when God created the world. And since marriage is created by God, we recognize that God is the governor of our marriages. We understand that it doesn't matter what our society or our culture says about marriage. It doesn't matter what cultures throughout history and throughout our world have said about marriage. What matters is, what does God say about marriage? What is God's rule for marriage? We want marriages that are by God. Marriages from God. And God, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, provided an outline for us regarding what He means marriage to be. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, as we read just moments ago, He said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is God's picture of marriage, even for us today. And we need to examine this, because there is a lot of confusion in our world today about marriage. There's a lot of error taught about marriage, and there's a lot of people that are not right with God, whose souls are in danger because they're following after our culture. We don't want marriage by culture. We don't want marriage by society. We want marriage by God. Would you please bow with me before we get into our lesson? Almighty God and Father in Heaven, we want our marriages to be governed by You. 
And we pray that you would help us to humble ourselves before you, having faith in you, realizing that what you have said about marriage, though perhaps different from our society, perhaps different from our natural inclinations, that what you have said about marriage is what is true and what is right and is what glorifies and honors you. And that's what we want more than anything else. More than anything in this life, we want you to be glorified and honored because you are the great and awesome and powerful and majestic God. You are the one who has created all things, who has sustained all things. You have given us life and health in all things. And we praise you, Father. We pray that our marriages and our families will be a tool that can praise and honor and glorify you. And we recognize that each and every one of us have messed it up, that we've all sinned in our marriages, and we pray that you would forgive us for that and help us to overcome. Father, the tempter is attacking our marriages and our families, and we pray that you would be our strength and our shield and our deliverer that you would help us overcome the tempter, that we might honor you in our lives and in our marriages. Father, we love you, and we pray that you be with us as we study your word this morning, that everything we study will simply be your will, and that we'll have the strength to live by it in in the face of a society that opposes us and opposes you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Moses commented on what happened there at the time of creation, He said that the man should leave his father and mother. We recognize, of course, that this is Moses' comment by inspiration because Adam and Eve, obviously, they didn't leave a mother and father. As Moses was recording this creation of marriage, he says, here's what this whole scenario means for us. The very first thing is, in marriage, that the marriage partners are to leave father and mother. A child's helper, a child's partner who cares and nurtures and brings them up as his parents or her parents. But there comes a time when that child must leave that care because God did not create parents to be the lifelong partners and companions. He created husbands and wives to be the lifelong partners and companions and helpers of one another. And therefore, when God talked about marriage, the first thing He said is that we must leave father and mother. I think there are three areas in which we need to take a look at this concept of leaving our father and mother. The very first and the most obvious is leaving our father and mother materially. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. Paul wrote, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God has placed upon the family that it is to be provided for, that we are to provide for our families. And as we look at the Scripture, we recognize the great burden of that is placed upon the husband, the father, to provide for the family. As we take a look at the greater context of 1 Timothy 5, we recognize that while we as grown-up children must learn to repay our parents, must learn to give back to our parents who have done so much for us, one of the very interesting things is there's nothing in the Bible about parents of grown-up children continuing to provide for them. We must learn to make a return to them. Why? Because they've already done their job. And it's now our time if we're going to have our own family to leave our father and mother and provide for our own. There comes a point 
at which each of us must leave father and mother. And I can't draw all the lines on that. I know different people have chosen different times. Some folks leave father and mother as soon as they graduate high school. Some when they graduate college. Some when they get their first job. But I can't draw this line. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 demonstrates that if we are going to be married, it is time to leave mom and dad. And if after we are married, we continue to have to live with mom and dad, we continue to have to constantly receive aid from mom and dad, then we are not ready to get married. Because God's law for marriage was leave mother and father. Now, I'm not suggesting, parents, that that means that there's never a time to help. There's never a time to... I'm not saying that. But I am noticing in the folks of my generation a terrible problem. And that is that the folks who are of my generation aren't leaving mom and dad. And they're continuing to live off of mom and dad. And mom and dad of grown children who have their own families continue to feel guilty about it and continue to provide for them. Mom and dad, your job is to bring your children up so that they will leave. And as much as you believe that you're helping your children, when you continue to provide for them after they're supposed to have left, you are not helping them, you are crippling them. You are enabling them to keep from having the marriage that God wants us to have. Leave mother and father. We need to leave emotionally. There are some who have left material. They no longer live with mother and father. They're no longer getting a whole lot of provision from mother and father. But they're still emotionally connected to mother and father. That's where their emotional health and strength comes from. And this is seen in no greater place than when husband and wife start having a disagreement or they have a fight. Anybody here ever had a fight with their spouse? Okay, yeah. I mean, we've all been there. There are some of us who at that point, the first thing we do is head to the phone and call mom or call dad. And we want to let them know, oh, you know what he did to me? You can't believe what she said, Dad. And we're going to them for our emotional support and for our help and our strength. But we need to remember that God didn't give us our parents for that. He gave us our wife for that. He gave us our husband for that. Well, but they're the ones that's causing the problem. No. You're having the problem together. You've got to work it out together. And see, one of the problems that happens is I call Mom and Dad when I have a problem with Marita. And now Marita and I are going to work it out tomorrow. But guess what mom and dad think about Marita? See, we're supposed to lean. I recognize, if we look in Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, it says, The children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse 2 says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. I recognize that that part of the command that says honor your father and mother is a lifelong command. We must continue to honor our father and mother no matter how old we are or how old they are. But we need to understand that when we get into marriage, then Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28 says, Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own life loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. God didn't give us our parents to nourish and cherish. He gave us our wives to nourish and cherish. And sisters, chapter 5 and verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. God has not given us our parents 
To have that type of respect and submission for, He has given your husband for that. And we must leave father and mother in that emotional setting. And I'll tell you, if you find in the, the, con- the, the conflicts that arise in marriage, if, if you find that in those inevitable conflicts you're constantly siding with mom and dad and you're constantly going back to them, chances are you've got a problem here. And believe me, I can tell you from experience how easy it is to make that mis- mistake. But we're supposed to leave mom and dad. And the third thing is leave spiritually. We're supposed to leave our mother and father spiritually. Now, by that, I do not mean that we necessarily abandon our mother and father's faith. If our mom and dad believed and taught the truth and taught us to practice the truth, we need to grab a hold of that and we need to follow it. But not because mom and dad said it. Even if what they said was the truth, if all we're doing is doing it because mom and dad said it, we're not obeying God from our own faith. If mom and dad taught error, we absolutely have to abandon that. But even if mom and dad taught the truth, we have to come into our own. We have to be doing it because we believe that it's right. And parents, we need to remember that. We need to raise up our kids so that they can leave us spiritually, having their own faith. Believing it because they've been able to go into the Scripture and see what God says. You remember Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, the generation that didn't know God? We've got to be raising up our children so that when they get on their own, they know God. They don't just know us and what we do. They know God and what He wants. And we need to remember Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14. And verse 14 and verse 20, the principle that is demonstrated there in Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. And in Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 20 again he states, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. It doesn't matter how amazing our parents' faith is or how amazing their righteousness is. We must leave them spiritually. There's a time in which we must go out on our own and do what we see in Scripture because we have faith in God because their righteousness cannot save us. It's not good enough that our parents are serving the Lord. It's not good enough that our parents are doing what is right. Their righteousness will not save us. We must be the spiritual servants of God all on our own because we have gotten into the Word and we're studying it and we're following it. We need to leave mother and father materially, emotionally, and spiritually if we're going to be married. Then he says, be joined to his wife. I like the King James there because it has that rhyming thing, leave and cleave. This makes it easier. Remember, we're supposed to leave our mother and father and cleave to our wife. The word that's translated cleave or cling to or be joined to, depending on which translation you have, is the Hebrew word debak, according to Strong's Enhanced Lexicon. It's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve Him and cling to Him. And you shall swear by His name. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 22, For if you are careful, this is Deuteronomy 11:22. if you are careful to keep all His commandment, which I am commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and hold fast 
to Him. The same word that talks about the husband and wife clinging to one another is the word that talks about our relationship with God, that we are to cling to Him, grasping a hold of Him, hanging on, holding fast. That's what God has said about marriage. We are letting go of mom and dad and we're grasping a hold of our wives and our husbands. We are to leave and cleave. We're to cling to. Ruth chapter 1. There's several other passages that we could look at, but Ruth chapter 1 and verse 14 uses the same term. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 14. Well, remember that Ruth's father-in-law had died. Ruth's husband had died. Her mother-in-law was heading back to Judah. And notice what it says about Ruth. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And no doubt this is that physical thing of her hanging on to her. She's not going to let her go. But there's a double entendre here as it goes on, and the mother says, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I'll go, and where you lodge, and I'll lodge. That your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And this passage is used a lot in marriage, even though it wasn't about marriage. It was about a mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law. But I tell you what, it does describe that clinging that God talked about there in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Leave and cleave. Grasp hold. In Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, we get so caught up in Matthew 19 to talk about God's law and divorce that I sometimes think that we miss one of the most amazing aspects of this verse. We're going to talk about what God says about divorce here in a second, but, but before we get to that, let's not miss this. In verse 4 of Matthew 19, Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them male, excuse me, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let no man separate. Do you see that? God joined them together. Do you realize that when we get married, God acts. That is a phenomenal thing. When we say those vows and we commit ourselves to one another, there is something that takes place in heaven. God takes action. And God forges a bond between us. How amazing is that? A bond upon which we are supposed to base our marriage. When we talk about this clinging, God says in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6, So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus said this in response to this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? That was the question. Is it lawful, Jesus, to divorce for any reason at all? Jesus' response is, What God has joined together, let not man separate. How would you sum that up into one word? Their answer was, Can we divorce for any reason? And Jesus said, No. No. We can't divorce for just any reason. And they questioned that. 
They asked some questions that Jesus responded to, but we need to remember the very basic teaching is, can we get a divorce for any reason? And Jesus said, no. And the general rule in Scripture is that divorce is unlawful. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I want you to notice this. Let's just be very clear. God didn't say, I hate the divorce. He said, I hate divorce. God wants us to leave father and mother and cling to our spouse. And as I look to Scripture, I find only two cases in which someone received a divorce and was not sinning when they did it. In Matthew chapter 19, the passage that we were just there, in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, as they continued to question Jesus there in verse 7, they said, well, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Here's one who has divorced their spouse because they committed immorality. The divorce in that setting is lawful. The one who puts their spouse away because they committed sexual immorality, that is lawful. That's the only divorce that we can seek that is lawful. But there is one other person who is divorced who is not sinning by that divorce. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15, we'll notice it says, Yet if the, this is 1 Corinthians 7, 15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. In other words, if in a marriage one of the spouses just abandons the marriage, then the one who is abandoned is not sinning by letting them go. Now, regarding remarriage. We go back to Matthew 19. What did it say? If you divorce except for immorality and marry another, you're committing adultery. Only one scenario in which a person can divorce and remarry, and that's if they put their spouse away for adultery. Uh, yes, for sexual immorality. The person who is abandoned, while they're not sinning by being abandoned, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11 demonstrates there where, where they are. To the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. The one who has been abandoned is allowed to reconcile with that lawful spouse. But if they marry someone else, Matthew 19 said that they are committing adultery. So what do we learn? God expects us to cling to our spouse. Cleave to him. I know it's not popular today. I know it's not what we like to hear. And I know that there are going to be some that say, Oh, but Edwin, I just can't believe God would expect me to put up with such and such. You know, my husband, he won't work. My wife, she wastes all of our money. My husband, he's a drinker. My wife, she won't go to church. My husband, he's mean. My wife, she disrespects me. You know, my spouse calls me names. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. 
if God has provided for a lawful divorce other than for the cause of immorality, then we have to have a better argument than just, I think God wouldn't expect this. We need the book, chapter, and verse that says it. Because all I can find are the verses we've already read. And the question is, do we want our marriages governed by the Word or by the world? And I know that we can find churches that will let us get divorced for whatever reason we want. But we're not going to be standing before those churches on the Day of Judgment. We're going to be standing before God who wrote this. God said, leave your father and mother and cling to your spouse. And then the third thing that He said was they shall become one flesh. Sadly, for many people today, this third statement about marriage has become nothing more in our minds than just, well, marriage is about having sexual fulfillment. And that is not what this statement is about. It includes that, but it is not primarily about that. Let me show you. Look in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul compares marriage between a husband and wife to the relationship between Christ and His church. In Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25, we'll just start there. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Excuse me, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of His body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You notice what he says here? He says, why did Christ do this for us? Because we are part of His one body. We have become one with Christ. The church is one with Christ. And therefore, Christ treats us like this. He says, that's just like husband and wife. Husbands, love your wives. Cherish and nurse them. Why? Because they have become one with you. Because they are a part of your one body. And just as Christ loves nourishing and cherishing His one body, we must love and nourish and cherish our one body, which means loving and cherishing and nourishing our wives. That's the concept here of the one flesh, that we have become a unit. God acted, He forged us together, and now we're supposed to live based on that. Being unified, becoming one. We go back to Matthew chapter 19. And in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus talked about the married couple being one flesh, did you notice He didn't talk about it as something that the married couple does every now and again? He said this is what they are. Listen to it. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is a perpetual state of marriage. When we are married, we are made one flesh. And we've got to live like that. We are made one body. Just as Christ and His church are one body. Husband and wife are brought together as one body, one unit. And we live based on that through communication, through working together, through drawing closer to one another. And yes, we even celebrate that 
in the ultimate expression of having become one unit and one body through sexual union. And that's what the sexual union is. It's that ultimate expression that we have become one. Growing closer to one another. And we need to keep it in its proper place there. It's not just about us having our needs met. It's about us being one with our spouse. And it ought to be the natural byproduct of that. Having grown closer to one another. That we enjoy that union as well. And we need to keep in mind 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2, and obviously in, in light of recent events in our world and in the politics, we've got to understand something. God has established rules about who's allowed to be a part of this one flesh relationship. In 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 2 it says, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. A man and a woman are allowed to enter this relationship together, only one of each. Interestingly, the word for husband in the Greek is the same as the word for man. The word for wife is the same as the word for woman. God doesn't allow for men to marry men and women to marry women. God's marriage is between one man and one woman. But the second thing we need to understand from that is that as the husband and wife have become one flesh, it's only the husband and wife that are allowed to enjoy that ultimate expression of the one flesh, the sexual union. In Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. It is only those who have become one flesh through marriage that are allowed to enjoy being one flesh in a sexual union. Everything else God will judge as fornication and adultery. This is the point that Paul was making in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, or verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, The two shall become one flesh. What's he pointing out here? He's saying the sexual union was for those who become one flesh. You're not supposed to be in that relationship with a prostitute. Only the marriage bed allows for this. And I want to speak very clearly and very bluntly to our teenagers here today and to anyone else who's not married. Sexual activity of all sorts, and I am not just talking about going all the way. Sexual activity is for marriage and for marriage alone. Young men, it doesn't matter to me how hot and bothered you are. It doesn't matter to me all the changes that you're trying to figure out. What matters is, are you going to be one spirit with God? Or are you going to become one body with someone to whom you're not married? Glorify and honor God in your body by waiting till marriage. Young ladies, doesn't matter to me how much He says He loves you. It doesn't matter to me how much you want to express your love to Him. What matters is, are you going to be one spirit with God or become one body with a boy to whom you are not married? 
Be one spirit with God. And wait until you're married to become one flesh with anyone. And if I can take just another moment or two to talk to those now who are married about what this means for us in our marriages. I'm going to look at one passage for us men and one passage for you sisters. Men, look in Proverbs 5. And I'll warn you, I'm going to have to be blunt because in our day and age, we just dance around this so much that by the time we're done, we haven't really said what we need to hear. But I don't have to say too much because I think this passage is pretty blunt all on its own. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15, men. Look at what it says to you. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he'll be held with the cords of his sin. He'll die for lack of instruction and the greatness of his folly. He will go astray. Do you see what this says to us, men? We have a wife. And we ought only to have eyes for her. Y'all see what this says? It says, be exhilarated, men, with your wife's love. Not with your fantasies about what you want your wife's love to be like but be exhilarated with your wife's love. The text says, let her breast satisfy you at all times. That means, men, that we're not allowed to go looking for someone else's. That means, men, that we're not allowed to venture into Playboy and on the Internet and in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition or the Victoria's Secrets catalog at someone else's. Have you ever heard men that statement, oh, just because you're on a diet doesn't mean I can't look at the menu. Men, we're not on a diet. We're in a covenant relationship with our wife. And that statement is the lie of the devil. And men are falling right and left thinking that they're allowed to look at the menu. In Proverbs it says that we need to keep our hands and our eyes to ourselves, men, and on our wives. And that's it. That's it. For men, this is the greatest destroyer of the union that God has forged between husband and wife. And it's high time we take control of that and start talking with one another about it because men are falling right and left. Because we're all too ashamed to admit the struggles that we have. Women, here's the verse I'd like for you to take a look at. It's in Titus. Titus chapter 2 and verse 4. Titus chapter 2 and verse 4. Your verse doesn't stand out quite as starkly as ours did. But Titus chapter 2 and verse 4 says to the women in marriage, told the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. Love their husbands. This passage is so important because the word for love there is not the one we normally hear about, the agape love. It's phileo. 
And the word there means to esteem and adore above all others. And sisters, do you realize what that says about you and your husbands? You are to esteem and adore them above all others. There is no room in your heart to esteem and adore some other man above your husband. There is no room in your heart to esteem and adore that ex-boyfriend whom you've built up in your mind now that you've been married for 15 or 20 years. And oh, how great it would have been if I had just stayed with him. There's no room for that. There's no room to esteem and adore that television character who is pictured so perfectly that, oh, if my husband was just like him. There's no room in your heart to esteem and adore your friend's husband who does all those things that you wish your husband would do. You know, the funny thing is, she's looking at your husband saying, I wish my husband would be more like him. There's no room for that. Your heart is to be given to your husband to esteem and adore Him above all others. Oh, but Edwin, if you knew my husband, you'd know that's kind of impossible. There's not much to esteem and adore about him. We'll find something and start building him up. Because I tell you what, for men, it's the issue of looking and touching that destroys the marriage union. For the women, for the most part, it's who am I allowing into my heart? the biggest devastator of the marriage union for the wife. This is what it means to become one flesh. To be one. To be united. To grow closer together. And because of that, to enjoy the activity of becoming one flesh. What has God said? This is marriage by God. Leave your father and mother. Be joined to your husband and wife. Be one flesh. How does your marriage compare to that? If you're not ready to do this, you're not ready to be married. If you've already gotten married and you haven't been doing this, then it's time to repent and let your marriage be like God says. I hope this lesson has helped you in your marriage. Let's remember what we've learned. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 provides our outline God expects us to leave father and mother, to cling to our spouse, and to become one flesh. If you have any questions about marriage, about roles in marriage, about what God has to say in other passages about marriage, please feel free to give us a call at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website, www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps somebody has given you this lesson on CD or on audio tape, if that's the case, may I please encourage you to go to that website I just mentioned, franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous outlines and audio sermons on that website that you're free to download and use in whatever way you believe will honor and glorify God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.